This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, everyone. My name is Augusta DeLomo, and I'm a first-year graduate student in the History Department in today's interview for Not Even Past. I'm here with my friend John Carranza, also a first-year history student who is here to talk to us about disability history. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. So I think this podcast, for me, is particularly timely because, as I'm sure you know, but for our viewers, the Paralympic Games are currently taking place in Rio. And this involves athletes with a range of disabilities, including impaired muscle power, impaired range of motion, visual impairments, and intellectual impairment. The Paralympics was originally started by a small group of British World War II veterans in 1948. Now it is one of the biggest sporting events in the 21st century. And while this is true, there are also huge problems with recognition, respect, and funding for these events. This is largely indicative of the historical record of people with disabilities whose history often never makes it into the public memory and yet has been one of the most marginalized groups historically in society. So John, why don't you start off with telling us about what is disability history? Disability history is actually an all-encompassing term, so Mm -hmm. it means a lot of different things. What we look at as historians of disability is pretty much physical and mental disabilities is usually how we characterize it. And what we're looking at specifically is the body. So the body kind of becomes a site for how we can interpret disability. And there's really a lot of aspects to disability history. It's um, a story about independence, Mm -hmm. but it's also a story about dependence. Mm -hmm. It's temporary in a lot of instances, disability. Sometimes people can move in and out of a disability, while for a lot of other people, it's permanent, and they usually require lifelong assistance of some sort. And it's also essentially a demand for rights, so it's a movement. It has um, evolved into a movement Mm -hmm. in which now people with disabilities are now trying to get more rights within American society. Yeah. And so framing in the context of American society, what are some key moments that you would point to as essential for understanding the history of disabled people in the United States? In the United States, there are a ton. There's actually a really good kind of survey history of disability history by Professor Kim Nielsen, and it's called A Disability History of the United States. Mm -hmm. And she traces uh, disability pretty much from the time of the Native Americans up to now, up Mm -hmm. up to the time up to the current time period. Right. But some of some of the ones that I think kind of really define American society and disability would be Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. So when we get the large-scale movement of immigrants coming into the United States, and when a lot of these immigrants are coming in, we see that they have to undergo a series of tests. Right. And they're short tests. These inspectors, American inspectors, don't take too much time actually inspecting them. But what they're looking for is they're looking for any sort of hint of these immigrants possibly having some sort of illness or disability that would require them to really use a lot of American resources. And so we're really trying to avoid that. So we want individuals to come in that can be pretty independent and Mm self-sufficient. In terms of Ellis Island, again, they would also check for homosexuality. So it's at this time that we see homosexuality as being a disability. And so they would be asked a series of questions like, are you interested in the opposite sex? Mm -hmm. Do you have friends of the opposite sex? So they're trying to screen for all of that. Right. 
Another good sort of uh, pivotal moment in monumental figures, mm-hmm. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Right. He was uh, one of one of our great American presidents right. who served several terms. And um, he was actually diagnosed with polio mm-hmm. at the age of 39. So in 1921, he contracted polio. And um, as a result of having polio, that left him with a pretty severe disability where he was not able to walk or stand for long periods of time. And so as a result, he needed a lot of assistance and he wore leg braces to help him kind of get around. But what's important about FDR is we have this figure coming in around the time of the Great Depression. And um, He's going to act as a sort of savior figure. And what's interesting is that FDR, even though he's disabled, he still stands as this huge monument to American history. And he's this great leader that leads us through the Depression. He helps pivot the New Deal through Congress. And he also sees us through part of World War II. Right. So it's at that time, his disability was pretty well known mm-hmm. in American society. And a lot of Americans really accepted that. And so I think it's kind of interesting to look at FDR and his tenure as president and kind of compare it to our politics today where we see any sort of disability or illness within our presidential candidates as being sort of disqualifying. Right. But he kind of stands as this one great figure. And then finally, I guess a third great moment was the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. It was signed into law by George H.W. Bush. This is sort of a culmination of a lot of different efforts by people with disabilities trying to agitate for more rights, more inclusion, more accessibility in American society. Really what the ADA does is it kind of gives us a lot of what we're familiar with today. So now we know that all buildings have to be accessible to individuals with disabilities. I don't know if you've ever seen, but there are telephones with Braille and there's specialized Mm -hmm. telephones now where people with uh, speech or hearing disabilities can now communicate. State and local governments also had to be readily accessible as well. Mm -hmm. So the ADA is kind of this culmination of a disability rights movement that began in pretty much around the time of FDR, when people were out of work and they started demanding work because oftentimes they were precluded from the New Deal. Yeah. So that way those jobs were given to, quote, able-bodied individuals. Right. Yeah, that's great. So when you're looking at the Americans with Disabilities Act or you're looking at FDR's tenure as president... How is research in this particular field usually done? Is it archival? Is it oral histories? Disability history is interesting because it's everywhere, but then it's kind of nowhere all at the same time. And um, two professors that have worked on disability history, Paul Longmore and Lori Umansky, they kind of come up with this idea that a lot of researchers might believe that there aren't any sources. And really, Longmore and Umansky, as well as Kim Nielsen, they kind of delve into the archives and they're able to find a lot of these good examples of disability. The answer to your question is a lot of primary source documents. So maybe some of the more traditional documents. We would look at maybe diaries, letters, some medical records if they're old enough. I think nowadays we're more concerned with people's privacy. So I think we destroy a lot of medical records. But definitely those pictures, letters have also been used to construct disability history to kind of get at what these people were maybe experiencing in the past. Right. 
Yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong, but individuals with disabilities is actually considered the largest minority group in the United States. So when you're talking about this rich primary source base for you all to work with, why is disability as a historical subject not been widely studied? I think that also has a lot to do with maybe a sort of misconception that there aren't sources. I think a lot of researchers are are used to maybe being able to go somewhere and find something very easily, find documents very easily. I think with disability history, it requires just a little bit more digging around into sort of personal lives and backgrounds to kind of construct this history. I also think a lot of it is personal. So researchers tend to focus on what they're familiar with, what their personal likes are. Maybe if they have personal attachments to a region or a group of people, they focus on that. So I think possibly that might be one of the reasons why we don't really study disability history as much as maybe some of the other regions or other minority groups. Right. And can you talk about kind of how people with disabilities have been traditionally represented? You mentioned these kind of groundbreaking works that have really transformed our understanding of disability history. But what is kind of the historical representation of people with disabilities? It hasn't been very good. (laughs) So people with disabilities have oftentimes been categorized by a variety of different terms and phrases and whatnot. We see idiocy and imbecile, just a couple of examples used to describe people with mental disabilities. We also see defectives is also another good example. They're really not depicted very well. So in the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, They're oftentimes viewed as tragic and pitiful and usually kind of a a strain on society because oftentimes who's going to take care of these individuals that have these disabilities if their families can't? Really, they're kind of pushed to the margins of society. So they're usually represented in in that manner. In the 1840s, people with disabilities end up joining freak shows and circuses and sort of these traveling vaudeville shows. And so these people that are already living on the margins of society are even further marginalized to some degree because now they are joining these institutions where people can now go and view them as some sort of other and some sort of distant freak, essentially. That's what these freak shows were. And so a lot of these, uh, particularly P.T. Barnum had his own show where he had people with differing body types. They would join these, and to some degree, they would become moderately successful. So even though they had disabilities, a lot of people were paying to go see them. And so they kind of made money off of their disability, so to speak. It goes back to the point you made about independence versus dependence at the beginning of this structure, yeah. Right, and we see a lot of that. So there were actually uh, conjoined twins, and they were uh, from Southeast Asia. They were the Bunker twins. They had been adopted, and so they went and they worked worked with P.T. Barnum, and they were able to live some pretty successful lives. So after they left the P.T. Barnum show, they ended up opening their own plantation, and they married a couple of other sisters. And so they had pretty prosperous lives. So in these freak shows, we still kind of see them as these sort of tragic figures because they have different bodies from us, but yet we pay to see them and they still are able to support themselves. And it's pretty interesting because we still see that sort of representation today. So if you watch American Horror Story, uh, they had one particular part that was on Freak Show. 
And so a lot of the the freaks on American Horror Story, they were actually pretty representative of the freaks of the past. It's just unfortunate that on the show they all kind of meet tragic ends. So in this instance, we don't really have them becoming independent and becoming successful. Instead, it ends in tragedy, which is one way that disability is often characterized in American society. And then another one, another way that people have been represented in the past, has to do with people with intellectual disabilities. So what was formerly mental retardation? Have you seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or read it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we know that the hospital, the asylum where they were staying, was pretty oppressive because we had Nurse Ratchet. And so we have this sort of authority figure that runs a very regimented schedule and she keeps them all on track. So they're not able to make any sort of decisions for themselves until Randall Patrick McMurphy comes in. Right. And so when he comes in, he tries to upset the system. And so in that instance, we start seeing these patients try to demand their own independence. However, this is another instance where we see it kind of meets a tragic fate where we have a suicide and then... McMurphy gets a lobotomy, so um, tragic end. Yeah. Tragic end. Yeah. So we these are the different sorts of representations, and there are several other ones as well. But for the most part, they often are tragic individuals that that don't yeah. really rise above their disability per se. Right. And does this come into your motivations for studying disability history, dealing with these false constructions and representations of disabled people, or? What other personal motivations do you have for this, for studying this subject? For me, it's it's pretty personal. I got my undergraduate degree at the University of the Incarnate Word, and then I got my master's at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And during that time period, while I was going to school and studying history, I actually worked in a group home with people with intellectual disabilities as well as other physical disabilities. And what I saw was very interesting. So I I had been in the field for about uh, 10 years. And so in that time, I was able to get to know a lot of these individuals. And what you see is not how they're often characterized in regular society. So what I saw were a lot of individuals that were pretty much like you and I. So they had their hopes and dreams. Many of them wanted to move out of their group home. There were some that had boyfriends or girlfriends, and they wanted to get married just like you or I possibly could. They wanted to have jobs. They just wanted to be included. And they didn't really, for the most part, see themselves as being outside of society, although society tends to construct that around them. And so personally, they became my friends. So I I had a lot of fun working with them. And so when I graduated with my master's, I didn't really know what I was going to do, because I had a humanities degree, but I had also had a lot of this other outside work. Right. And so it wasn't until I actually read A Disability History of the United States by Professor Kim Nielsen that I realized that maybe I can take this route where I can uh, combine my humanities as well as my own personal experiences and make it into a work of history and explore how people with disabilities have been portrayed and included or not included in society over time. Yeah. 
And how do you think our understanding of disability can be taken in a global context and understanding society is on a world level, not just in mm-hmm. the United States, the portrayal of disability? Yeah. So I think disability in general is worldwide. So all across the world, people have bodies and people's bodies tend to break down or they're born with disabilities. So I think it adds a lot of value to begin to learn in a in an increasingly globalizing society, how other cultures treat individuals with disabilities. And it's important to have that comparative aspect, especially in the United States, where we are proud to be an immigrant nation, where we bring people in. So I think, for example, if we look at some place like Nigeria, the way they address children with disabilities, they often see that child having a disability for different reasons. That child has gotten a disability for a number of possible reasons, some of which might include a curse from God, which would have been a consequence of someone being disobedient or breaking God's commandments. It could have been a cause of witches or wizards, adultery, arguing, and and fighting with elders. There's a variety of different reasons. So I think that if we come back to the United States and we have a Nigerian family with a child with a disability, and they're still very connected to their home country, I think it's important to understand those different societal aspects. Mm -hmm. So that way we can begin to formulate plans on how to help the child with a disability. Another way that we can look at disability in a global context is we can actually refer to a very current global health situation, and that's the Zika virus. We know that it's spreading pretty rapidly. It's been determined that the Zika virus tends to cause uh, fetal abnormalities such as microcephaly, which means a smaller head size. And that in itself can lead to a variety of different complications such as seizures, developmental delay, not meeting all of your developmental milestones. And so as a result of not tackling Zika and women possibly contracting the Zika virus and possibly having babies with microcephaly, this creates a problem because now With babies born with microcephaly, it becomes an enormous public health concern, and it becomes very financially draining on not just the parents, but also our political system and any sort of programs that are there to help, and not to mention emotionally draining as well. Yeah, and it disproportionately affects low-income families and non-white families. Right. So that's a huge factor that plays into this cycle. Right. Yeah. And can you talk to us a little bit about some of the movements that are going on with disability rights right now? I know when I was an undergraduate student, one of the big movements that one of our disability advocacy groups did was the use of the R word, the use of the word retarded Mm -hmm. in everyday speech. So are there similar movements like that? Are there ones focused on more policy-based? Just kind of from your experience, what have you seen? I think right now the movement to remove the R word is still very much a a big part of the movement. It still hasn't been completely eradicated. So kind of going into that, it's been determined that the use of retarded to describe something negative is now um, falling by the wayside, much like other words in our society have. I think there's also a move now to ensure that people with disabilities still have access to everything around them in the community, different resources and and rehabilitative therapies and, and medicine. So a big part of the movement, I would say, is political. So we want to ensure that our lawmakers are providing enough funds in 
programs such as Medicaid that help to cover such therapies as speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, as well as a variety of other necessities for people with disabilities. Yeah. And as a former teacher, you used to work with students. How would you like to see disability taught in the American public classroom? It would be great to see people with disabilities included a little bit more. There's been a great move towards inclusion, so we include a lot of uh, minorities in, in our curriculum. So I think it would be great to begin to focus on people with disabilities. And really, when you think about it, it tends to tie in with a variety of the other minorities. So African-Americans with disabilities can be discriminated against much like a member of the LGBTQ community with a disability can also be discriminated against. Yeah, there's an intersectionality of a lot of these issues. Yeah, Yeah. so there's a lot of intersection, uh, especially with women and a variety of different minorities. And so I think it would be great if we begin to work in disability in a manner in which maybe it can align with some of the other minority groups And we can even begin to focus more on the actual disability movement that began in the 50s and 60s. But a lot of it is political. So we tend to hear arguments about political correctness. And I think that if we're looking at a public school textbook, maybe there's a lot more work to be done in terms of education and inclusion. In terms of maybe the college American history courses, I would say, again, building on this literature and trying to bring recognition to disability history. And maybe we can teach more of that alongside the textbook or within the textbook instead of just talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act and kind of leaving it at that. Right. Definitely. Well, John, thank you so much for coming to be with us. I think this has been a really great episode and just learning a lot about not only the inclusion of disabled people in American society, but including them in the historical record across younger educated students and at the college level, too. So this has been another episode of 15 Minute History, and we'll see you next time. Thank you all so much. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.